Matthew chapter 4. We actually are going to be in several passages today. I'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, I want to make one correction. Our City Moon 60 for this month is actually at 3 p.m., not 4 p.m., 3 p.m. So just an FYI, but that's in your, your weekly. It should be written down there. All right, so as uh, Karen had just mentioned a minute ago, we are in a new series called Walking with Jesus and Entering the Gospel Narrative. Um, the reason for the kind of the sub uh, phrase is that uh, the idea of walking with Jesus oftentimes seems a bit vague for us, like intangible, um, but there is actually quite a bit for us in the gospel texts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, that if we were to give ourselves over and really just allow ourselves to kind of enter uh, the narrative as it's playing out, making, making ourselves uh, present with Jesus in that time, in that place, hearing him as if we were there with him. Um, I have learned that this can actually be quite an incredible way of kind of positioning or posturing yourself um, getting into the text. Um, and so with that, uh, we are going to be hitting on several gospel texts today. Um, we're going to be hitting on Matthew 4 that I've directed to you to already. But if you would like to um, flip to each of our passages, just know that I'm going to be going to Matthew 28. I'm also going to be going to Luke 24. And then I will be finishing up at John chapter uh, 20. What this series of sermons is going to uh, hopefully accomplish is um, deal with the questions around the subject of discipleship, um, being a disciple, making disciples, and even maybe the most preliminary of questions, what is a disciple? Uh, that is an important question. In fact, that question is the one that I endeavor for us to pursue today, is what is a disciple of Jesus? Uh, and our reason um, for taking this journey through some of the key gospel accounts is so that we can have the shared experience of hearing from Jesus himself. Uh, let's, let's see what he has to say about discipleship. Let's hear from Jesus himself and enter that gospel narrative together. And in that way, we do our best, our best effort, um, can't be foolproof completely, but our best effort to protect ourselves uh, from... Um, some potentially bad paths towards understanding discipleship, one of which is just taking wild guesses or going with our gut as to what discipleship might be. Uh, another is simply echoing something we heard somewhere or possibly something we were taught by someone, um, which isn't necessarily bad, but maybe we're taught something or, or, or maybe a layer to what we view as discipleship that simply... Uh, was not um, technically scriptural um, or maybe didn't have any scriptural input at all. Um, and then finally, the temptation of being sucked into uh, what always seems to happen in every generation, some provocative, new, previously hidden, but now discovered teachings that take us beyond the scriptures. Um, there are too many gurus to name and too many lines of teaching to identify even in my lifetime, but suffice it to say there's always those who claim to have some sort of new thing that they've discovered that was previously hidden. Um, and just to, be, just to be real candid, it's, it's old. Uh, it's as old as the world. 
And it is doing us good to go back to the scriptures, back to Jesus, and hear from him and not make any assumptions on these matters. And while we hope to gain as close to a 360-degree look at what it looks like to stay close to Jesus and be his disciple as we can, uh, we definitely won't hit on every text that we could in the gospel accounts, but we will endeavor to soak in quite a bit along the way. So today, like I said, we're going to hit on the question of what is a disciple? It's a good baseline foundational question to ask. Uh, we'll hear some more nuances as we go through some of the other texts, but we'll be taking um, four of the key bookend words of Jesus in the gospel accounts. Uh, four of the texts that are bookend accounts in the gospel accounts. And in so doing, um, and by the way, just, just one of them is kind of at the beginning bookend, and that's the Matthew 4 passage. The rest of them are at the back end of the bookend. And so um, the reason why I do this is because oftentimes uh, in the Bible you will have um, a way in which uh, there is things there are things said on the front end of a text and on the back end of the text, and then the middle kind of kind of fleshes it out a little more, or maybe even puts a little bit of skin on it. And, and that is actually the case in a lot of ways in what we have in the collection of what Jesus did and and where he walked and how he talked to his disciples and how he taught them what it looks like to be his disciples. Um, but on the back end and on the front end, we have some really interesting foundational things said that are incredibly helpful for us. Us that will help us going forward into the remainder of the text in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so I'm going to start by reading each account, and then we're going to come back and cross-reference through each of them uh, along the way and just see what we can see. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 starts off this way. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. If you don't know these two people, they were two of the earliest disciples of Jesus. Uh, and, um, and Peter, in fact, uh, wrote part of what we know as our New Testament. Um, and he obviously became an important leader in the early church. Um, and they were casting a net into the sea, uh, for they were fishermen. Uh, and he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, and they were in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed Jesus. And he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Moving on. To Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Just so that we have context um, on this passage and on the Luke passage and on the John passage, this is after Jesus has died on the cross, he has been buried in a grave, and after three days he has been raised from the dead. And so this is the resurrected Jesus talking to his disciples. He had directed them to a mountain, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, and some doubted. Verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Moving on to Luke 24, beginning in chapter, I'm sorry, verse 44, says this. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. He's talking about pre-resurrection, pre-crucifixion. While I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, when he says that phrase, law of, law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, he's just talking about the Bible as we understand it as our Old Testament, okay? The early portion of our Bible, that's all he means by that. He's just, he's just repeating the variety of uh, sections of the Old Testament Bible. Then, verse 45, Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, that's probably just a phraseology that means he explained it very thoroughly so that they had no question as to how the scriptures spoke of him in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And so he kind of broke it down for them. And verse 46 continues, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now, everything he just said there in verse 46 and verse 47 is him further explaining one of the key messages about himself that he explained to them from the law, from the Psalms, from the prophets. Uh, one of the key themes was that it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead and the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in the name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That basically the gospel message that has been spoken to them from the earliest days of the Bible has now been achieved. It has actually happened in historical form, the redemption of man through the coming the dying and the rising of Christ. Verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Finally, John chapter 20, verse 19 is where we'll start. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, uh, likely in the upper room where they had the, the Last Supper with Christ, uh, they had locked the door. They were afraid still uh, based upon their association with Jesus and how that might be bad and go bad for them with the Jewish people, uh, specifically the leaders. Uh, Jesus came, it says, and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, presumably to confirm for them any doubts they might have that he is in fact the same Jesus they knew and they walked with and who was in fact crucified just a few days prior. But yet he was raised from the dead now. 
Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, real quickly, that phrase gives some people fits. It's probably not as complicated as we make it. Um, the only association with the phrase he breathed on them we have basically makes it sound like he exhaled. Um, if I could put it into um, uh, really a common way of understanding, he, he, he basically went, okay, now the time has come. Receive the Holy Spirit. And when he's saying that, um, he's saying that when the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost, which it hasn't yet come, he's saying when it comes, the promise of the power from on high, you're going to need to receive it. Okay, This is him reiterating the importance of the power of the Spirit of God for them going forward. And so he says, here it is, guys, receive the Holy Spirit. And then when he had said this, receive the Holy Spirit, he said, if you forgive the sin of any, they are forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Again, this phrase causes a lot of fits. Uh, it probably doesn't mean what you think it means or what it plainly seems to mean. Um, this is where the phraseology does not help us in the English. Basically, what it is saying, it is saying that for those in whom you actually have proclaimed uh, the message of the gospel who receive it, they will stand their sins forgiven. In fact, that's literally, it's saying, it says that they will be standing sins forgiven and those who do not respond in receiving the gospel message or if you do not speak the gospel message to them, they will be standing in their sins or remaining in that moment in their sins. All right. With that said, I'm sure there are other things, other questions you might have, but we just don't have time to address all of them. Uh, it is important that we get to um, our goal at hand, and that is really to find out what do these texts tell us about what it is to be a disciple, what a disciple actually is. And um, if you really extract and work around some of the complexities, and there's complexities here like there is in a lot of scripture that we read, and there are some things that are hard to understand in a lot of scripture we read just here, there are as well. But here's the thing. There are also in these texts some of the most plain, clear words about being a disciple of Jesus that you will ever find. Really plain words, really clear words. And so a lot of times our goals when we get to the scriptures is not to solve every mystery or hit every bump and decide we're going to stop right there and we're going to try and figure out what we don't understand about that bump. But really what is beautiful about the scripture and, and these texts uh, specifically for us today is that um, we can actually just see what's just plain and clear and walk away having really been um, blessed by the revelation of what God has given us about himself and about what he's doing in this world. And so I had a tech, or a, not a tech, a, a, a professor who um, was really, um, really, I, I kind of considered him kind of a simple guy, but he was simple in a really good way. And he would have us uh, take some scriptures every day in class 
and he would say, take just two or three scriptures and over just a few minutes, write down what is clear and plain from these. Don't get stuck on anything. Don't, don't fret over anything you don't understand. Just write down what is clear and plain. Just write a list, you know, number, dotted list, whatever, what is plain in this text. It was an amazing discipline, um, and it has taught me since then to not get hung up on things, but really to receive the word of the Lord as it is, as I understand it in this time. And so maybe that'll help some of you as you approach the text. And in fact, as we approach this text and other texts during this series of sermons, um, I hope to kind of model that for you to point out some plain things. But then I will also, cre- I also deal with some complexities and, and show you some nuance in it. But what I really want to do kind of on the top level is I want to just give you some simple things that we can see. And in this text, or these texts specifically, when we take multiple texts, it's an opportunity to do the same, only do it in a cross-referencing fashion and see how the Bible actually harmonizes with itself, how it actually integrates and how the text actually can be seen as saying um, many of the same things, but oftentimes saying things in different ways um, or from different emphases. So with all that said, I want to point out really just three big picture uh, characteristics of being a disciple of Jesus, at least three things that are huge themes running throughout all the texts that we just read uh, here, uh, here uh, in this moment. The first thing is this. A disciple of Jesus is someone that has simply obeyed or responded positively to the calling of Jesus. A disciple of Jesus is someone who has obeyed or responded positively to the calling of Jesus. Uh, real quick aside, um, I don't know if you caught this, but um, we'll get into this in a minute. But verse 19 of Matthew 4 um, really has an interesting and packed phrase when it says, Follow me, I will make you fishers of men. A lot of stuff is said just in that simple sentence. Um, but what is also said later on, not about Peter and Andrew, but about James and John, is also informative. Instead of giving us a sentence, it simply says, He called them. He called them. And so that was basically a stand-in word for what it is that he just called them to, to follow him, and that he will make them fishers of men. Um, Interesting, we use the word calling in Christian circles differently than the Bible does. In fact, the Bible only uses the word calling in two primary ways, Uh, not exclusively, but two primary ways. Uh, The two primary ways are this, the way it's used here, calling people to follow Jesus, uh, that people are called to follow Jesus, and then two, for someone who has responded positively to the calling to Jesus, you are now called to call others to, to respond to or follow Jesus. That these are unmistakably the two callings we all have if you are a follower of Jesus. Anything else we call a calling in the scriptures is really, really hard uh, to proof text and to back up. And we might better call them desires or wants or maybe even a spiritual stirring of some sort. But calling is actually a very specific word used in a very specific way in the Bible. You are called to Christ and called to his mission to actually call others to Christ. Um, So with that said, um, follow me was the call. 
follow me was the calling. He said, follow me. So foremost and central to being a disciple of Jesus, um, someone obeying and responding positively to the call of Jesus is actually knowing who you're following, knowing Jesus, and being where Jesus is, and working where Jesus is working, going where he goes. Um, in fact, it's informative that in the Luke passage, he opened the scriptures to them because not only did they know him as a friend on a, like a personal level, flesh level, because like he was there in the flesh for them. He's not here in the flesh for us, right? Um, he has since returned to the right hand of the Father. Um, but but he, he expanded their knowledge of who he was by opening their mind to the Old Testament. He says, there is more to know about me that you haven't even picked up on by being my friend here in the flesh. And so he opened their mind to the scriptures to see what the scriptures have, have to say about him so they could know him even more. Friends, those same scriptures that expanded their knowledge of who Jesus were, they were accessible to us today. And so every time we open and read our Bibles, friends, we are positioning ourselves to know Jesus better. To know him more is to read not just the gospel accounts, which are fantastic. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in a very direct way, help you and I know who Jesus is. But we're not limited there. The whole Bible is an invitation to reveal Jesus to us. And so we read the scriptures to know Jesus more. And by the way, i got to say this before moving on. One of the things that the Matthew 28 passage points out is that when they came prior to having been called to follow Jesus and then to call others to follow Jesus by making disciples, uh, he, the text notes that some of them believed but some of them were doubters. That's really important for some of us today because while some of us may already believe, others of us might be on the cusp of belief, meaning kind of like we're ready. We're just wanting to believe and we're just looking for the, the Lord to, to stir and enable our hearts to believe finally and fully for the first time. Um, that is not the limitation of Jesus' call to discipleship. It's amazing. People were there who doubted he zipped right past that and still said, follow me and go make disciples in my name. Which is fascinating. If you're a doubter, you're far from God maybe even. He says, if you walk with me and begin going where I go, even doubting, oh, you'll believe eventually. <laughs> because the heart I grip is a heart that will in fact believe. And so if he's calling you, even if you're in a place of doubt, friends, it is only through the power of Jesus that I can even respond to the Lord. <laughs> and so if he's calling you, then he's got a plan for your ability to believe and respond. And he's just calling you to be faithful and take the next step in following him. And I don't know what that looks like for you today, but whether you thought that there was a pedigree rule whether you thought there was a level or, or strata you had to reach to actually begin taking Jesus' word seriously and follow him, this text seems to indicate that is not the case. Wherever you are on the spectrum of, of great belief and great doubt, he's calling you to take the next step. Very hopeful.
So a disciple of Jesus is someone that has obeyed or responded positively to the calling of Jesus. Second thing that a discipleship, a disciple of Jesus is, that we see clearly throughout the big picture of these four passages, a disciple of Jesus is a Holy Spirit enlivened human being. A Holy Spirit enlivened human being. And so we are those who have responded positively to the call of Jesus to follow him, to walk with him, to be with him, to go where he goes. But we do that as Holy Spirit enlivened human beings. The emphasis, by the way, on when he talks about the Holy Spirit in us is on the plural in most cases. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit isn't in me as an individual. That's not what I'm saying. It is, of course, in me as an individual. But the dominant portion of the Bible speaking about the Holy Spirit in me or in us is in the plural form. There is something unique and special about the family, community, the social aspect of the gospel and the Spirit of God working in and through us. Um, incredibly critical. Um, having said that, um, it, is, it is clear from these texts that it is a gift from God that we can even be Holy Spirit-enlivened human beings. That the Holy Spirit himself, God the Holy Spirit, is actually God's gift to us from on high, from the Father who gives good gifts. It is nothing we could earn, nothing we sought out, nothing that we can, we can even the scales or balance out to somehow merit. The Holy Spirit is completely a gift from God. And we should understand this and understand that God is the instigator in this and he is the catalyst for this. We saw that right from the beginning when he called his first disciples in Matthew 4 when he says, I will make you fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You will not be self-made. You will not be able to self-power yourself. I will make you fishers of men. And Luke tells us, John tells us, that this is a gift from God. This is a gift from God, a good gift to receive. In fact, that is, in fact, what he says. He says, receive the Spirit in John chapter 20. Receive the Spirit. The Spirit is a good gift, and so you should receive it. Now, what does that mean? Well, hopefully I can tell you what that doesn't mean and what it does mean by saying this. To receive the Spirit is inseparable from our calling to follow Jesus. It is inseparable. We cannot follow Jesus and not receive the Spirit. Now, of course, in context of these texts, for the disciples in their situation... They had to follow Jesus the best they could until they received the Spirit at Pentecost. And that's why he's telling them when, when Pentecost comes, and he, he doesn't use that language, but when, when the time comes, receive the Spirit. Because that's, that's hand in hand with following him. In fact, it's needed to follow him. And so... God the Holy Spirit, though on this side of Pentecost, which we all find ourselves, is one and the same. We receive the Spirit when we follow Jesus. We follow Jesus when we receive 
the Spirit to follow. And it is the Holy Spirit, we are told, that will mediate the presence of Jesus in our lives. Jesus says at the end of Matthew 28, the Great Commission, he says, I will be with you always to the end of the age. This is why it's so important to understand that being a disciple, one of the dominant three aspects of being a disciple is being a spirit-enlivened human being because the way he is present to us, the way we walk with Jesus, is that we're walking with the spirit, the spirit of God that mediates his presence. Again, the passage in Luke expands on this a little more in a way that Matthew may have left us with a little bit of a mystery as to how his presence would be with us. Luke, chapter 24, leaves no mystery to it. Same with John 20. It is the Holy Spirit that brings the presence of Jesus to our lives. And by the way, it is the Spirit of God who makes Jesus the main message of the gospel and who points all who would watch, who would listen, who would hear to Jesus. And then, finally, it is also the Holy Spirit that empowers us in the first place to even be obedient to God in any way possible. We're told, again, in the Matthew Commission to teach new disciples of Jesus to be obedient, to hear what has been taught, and to obey, which is something we cannot do and accomplish without being Holy Spirit-enlivened people. We cannot. In fact, that was part of the frustration of the people of God for so many, so many millennia is the ability to, to follow was so difficult. But with the Holy Spirit, there is now a possibility of being able to, as the Bible says, keep in step with the Spirit, for keeping in the step with the Spirit keeps us close to Jesus. Keeping in step with the Spirit actually enables us to have the power at hand to follow and obey Jesus as obedience comes before us, or an opportunity to obey comes before us. And the way in which we obey is described in Luke 24 in the way that Jesus says they will proclaim the gospel as a message of repentance. And all that means is, and, and, and if you don't know what repentance is, repentance is the process by which we turn from lies and turn to truth. It's the process by which we turn from disobedience to obedience. And so again, harmonizing these texts together for us, it is only a spirit-enlivened person who could actually do this, who can actually receive a message that's built around repentance, for repentance is only possible through change by way of the catalyzing, instigating power of God the Holy Spirit. And it also empowers us in an important way that leads us to our third and final characteristic of being a disciple of Jesus. And that is this. A disciple of Jesus multiplies him or herself or makes more disciples. Now pause. I realize now after hearing these three big ideas, some of you are going, wait a minute, isn't there much more to being a disciple of Jesus? Sure, absolutely. 
But if we're to take and harmonize these four texts, which form the bookends of our gospel narrative texts, unmistakably there are three big movements that are being come back that we come back to over and over in these texts, and these are them. And and we could probably kind of subhead a lot of other things under under them. But it is critical that you understand that at the most basic level, being a disciple of Jesus is about responding to Jesus. And by the way, not just responding to Jesus for the first time, but continually responding to him. I don't need the gospel then and not now. I'm still responding to the gospel, friends. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're still being called to respond to the, jo- the gospel, respond to Christ. And you still are only able to respond to the gospel and to Christ if, in fact, you are a Holy Spirit-enlivened individual. I didn't just need the Holy Spirit of God to follow Jesus initially. I need the Holy Spirit of God to follow Jesus fully to the end of my life. And so this third characteristic in which the Holy Spirit also is necessary for us, required for us to actually carry out a disciple of Jesus, multiplies him or herself or makes more disciples. Um, by the way, I, I always go back to this Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. It's, it's one of the most simplistic ways to think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Um, in fact, throughout church history, a lot of people have pointed to this as one of the most simple ways of understanding what a disciple of Jesus actually is. Um, and so we're, we stand on good ground in history when we go back to Matthew 4, um, 19. Um, but it says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Isn't it interesting that he, he says within the same sentence to follow him and a part of integral ingrained in following him is getting others to follow him. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? And so you can't even be a disciple by just responding, but you're responding to a call not only to be a disciple, but to be a multiplier of what he's calling you to be. And so this is, this is integral to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. You cannot divorce multiplication from discipleship. It's built into the calling that Jesus has given me, to, he gave to these original disciples, and all since in history. I will make you fishers of men, he says. And again, the emphasis, I will make you that. In other words, the Holy Spirit enlivened human being is the one who has the capacity to even be made into the fishers of men that Jesus desires to make us into. And that should give me, that should give you a lot of confidence. Um, it should give us a lot of confidence because he usually, he, uh, usually, not usually, he accomplishes what he sets out to do. I don't always do that. You don't always do that. He always accomplishes what he sets out to do. Furthermore, we should take great confidence from going back to the Great Commission before he even tells them to go and make disciples. He says, all authority on a heaven, in heaven and on earth is given to me. All authority. In other words, his authority has gone before us time and time again. Like what he wants, he gets. And so 
we can actually make disciples of Jesus, multiply disciples of Jesus with great confidence, knowing that he, if he wants us to take part in the making of a disciple of Jesus, it's going to happen. We don't have to rely on our own cleverness, certainly not on our own authority, moral or otherwise. But his authority is sufficient for us, guys. It's sufficient. And we also see in these texts the way it talks about multiplication. It calls us sent ones. I am sending you as the Father has sent me. And the same language, as I am sending the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is sent as a missionary so that I can actually be sent as a missionary. <laughs> you are sent ones. Again, in the Great Commission, Matthew 24, he uses it. He says it this way, go, go, or, or as you go is another way you can phrase that. And, and what he says about sending people out both in Luke 24 and Matthew 28 is real instructive. He tells us to go to the nations. And that doesn't mean just nation states in the way we think of it in our modern thinking. That doesn't just mean people groups in the way that the modern missionary movement might coin the phrase. It doesn't mean races, ethnicities, and all that. It doesn't mean less than any of those things. It means all those things and far more. I've said this before, but if you're new with us, one of the best ways I feel like we can translate that, that concept of go, make disciples of all nations, or proclaim repentance to all nations, is, as Luke 24 tells us, is basically go to every kind of human being, every stretch of humanity you could possibly imagine near, far, whatever. Every type of human. Every kind of person you might run into. In other words, this is fascinating because, because the way the Lord saved me was very personal. If you were a follower of Jesus today and the Lord really gripped your heart and drew you to him, and he became a Christian and a follower of Jesus, um, his disciple, then um, chances are you felt that very personal, and you knew that he, he did single you out in that moment. He singled you out. He called you out. The funny thing is, when it comes to God saying, I, I'm calling you now to join me in calling others out, while he might still be very specific about how and who he calls out, he is not calling us to be. He says, you're indiscriminate. You have no boundaries. Call any and everyone to trust Jesus. Call any and everyone to follow Jesus, who will hear, who will listen. It's not our job to know who and what the details of what he's doing in any time, place, or with someone, but rather to be obedient and just to trust that we are, in fact, going to be in the stream of what he's doing in this world when we simply obey his call to be indiscriminate in going and making disciples of all peoples, of all kinds. And it's said in this, as you go, you're to proclaim a message. The gospel is, is seen, of course, like, like we can portray or model the gospel in the way we live, but, but make no mistake, it's not just a way of living. It's a verbal message we tell. 
and we tell it. We don't share it. I know that's a nuance. I know that's something that, that we could split hairs on, but we don't really share the gospel. The Bible doesn't even use that language. We tell the gospel. We proclaim it. We announce it. That is the language of the Bible. He says, go proclaim it. Announce it. Tell it. And just see who might believe. And so with that said, we tell this, we proclaim this gospel message, which is a message dominated by repentance. We've already mentioned that. A message that is also not just about repentance, which is the theological aspect of the message, of what Jesus did to make even that possible. But there's also a very personal aspect to it. He says, you are my witnesses. You are my witnesses. Now, for the disciples hearing that, they literally were witnesses of these events, right? And so they have a really unique perspective that you and I don't share. But we are witnesses of a different kind. Did you not know that? We are witnesses as well. We are witnesses of the things of God and what he has done for us. In other words, your witness may not be having visibly seen Jesus in the flesh and walk with Jesus. Your witness is that he actually has done something in you that's very personal and very real. So you have a message to tell. It's not just a theological message to, to proclaim, but it's also a witness to proclaim. You have a story to tell, not just the theological ins and outs of the gospel. Yes, that. But there's a way it worked itself out in a very specific, personal way for you. And the Lord wants that as a witness for others. It's a mis message that paints a vision of a new way of living, a new human being, and a new community, a society, or a family. It's the kingdom. This is what he talked about in those first few verses in Matthew 4. That right after getting his disciples, he began to model the proclaiming of the kingdom of God. This gospel of the kingdom of God. The redemption of all things. But until the redemption of all things, a micro version of it in his people. A new community. A new society or family. Which people could see how things operate under the called people of God, enlivened by the Spirit, doing what he does and going where he goes. And you are sent, you and I, to form these kingdom disciples. This is where the, the Great Commission helps us so much. We are called to welcome and integrate people into God's family. When we baptize people, we literally do baptize them. We show a picture of the, the gospel's theological message about what Jesus did in the picture of baptism. But we're baptizing people not just to show that picture, but we're baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is an entirely different thing, which is the family of God. The original family of God is, is what? Father, Son, and Spirit. And so they're being baptized into a family. And so as such, if we were to engage in what we might call spiritual formation, which is God's inviting us into, you know, forming, making disciples. The Matthew 28 text indicates that we're welcoming and integrating them into the community of God's people, the gospel family. It also indicates that we're teaching them, teaching them to obey, to obey. 
the commands of Jesus, leading, mentoring, and modeling the nature, what it looks like to live within the rhythms of obedience. Because most people don't have a vision for what that even looks like, right? But we're modeling that. We're showing that. Pointing them to stay near to Jesus, to go where he goes. That's why I love that the fact that the Great Commission ends on, I am with you always to the end of the age, because it reminds us of the original truth that we're called to Jesus. And we're called to be in his presence and to spend time with him and to walk and live with him. And so we point new followers that we make into disciples of Jesus, always point them back to the presence of Jesus and spending time in the presence of Jesus, whether it's with other people, whether it's alone. We point them to be where he is, near him, where he goes. And this is a disciple. This is a disciple.